the very first page in your Bibles, um, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1 this morning as we continue into our Advent. Yes, we are starting it early. I know that some of you, that's, that's a deep problem when we start Christmas stuff too early. But hey, Costco beat us to it, so you know that's, that's okay, you know. Um, we can continue on into this as we prepare ourselves for Advent, as we prepare ourselves for Christmas uh, this morning. But we're walking through essentially the story of Scripture, and in doing so, it is our goal and our hope that, number one, we see the beauty and the awe of what Christ has done for us, but also we see the overall thread and the backbone of Scripture so that not only does the Old Testament make sense, far more sense to us, but when we see the life of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we are filled with awe and glory and fresh to new, even if you do know all this, place before us just the wonder of who Christ is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Open us now uh, our eyes so that we might see your word. And in seeing your word, give us ears to hear, and giving us ears to hear that that would soak and saturate our minds, that we'd be transformed, that we'd not uh, be conformed to the pattern of this world, but through your word, you would transform us. You would renew our minds, Father, Um, that it would seek deep, not only into our intellect and what we what we believe, but it would change our heart. It would change our very affections, Father, uh, that we would love you um, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would be a people flowing out of that love, that we would love one another. And just guide us and direct us into your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, I've shared on many different occasions Um, there isn't a lot of family pride within the Sullivan name that I have as I look going back. Of of course, I love my mom, and and my mom's side of the family is is a great. However, if we look at the Sullivan side, and of course, many of you know that my real name isn't Bo. My real name is actually Jimmy Max Sullivan III. And so I come into a, a long line of Jimmy Max, and not one of them, is a source of pride. They are all just an incredible train wreck of a Jerry Springer episode. <laughs> and, and I've shared this before, and, and so it, it really is a, just a source of frustration as I look at that whole side of the family. And as many of you know, uh, I really don't know my real dad. I've met him a couple of times. Um, he is not... Um, someone who has wanted a relationship with me. And that's, a, you know, God's grace, and I've shared all of that stuff, and we've looked at what forgiveness looks like, and we've shared all that before. But a long story, you know, to kind of make a long story short, I have this parent within me that is not a source of strength, not a source of pride, but actually kind of a source, if I'm being honest, of shame. And even though I've not met him, one of the most frustrating things for me is when I've had some members of that family who would look at me as I was growing older and was like, oh, wow, you do that just like your dad did that. Oh, that, that is not a comforting thought for me. Like they'll say, oh, the way you walk is just like your dad walked. And, and another source of kind of contention for me is if 
if, if I'm being perfectly honest, if we were to compare pictures, I am the spitting image of my father. He looks just like me. And my, my sister uh, met him uh, one time, and, and we came back, and we're like, so what is he like? What? And he's like, he looks just like you, just older. And that was not a comforting place for me because that's not someone I wanted to associate with. That is not something that I wanted to characterize me. And then when I look into that relationship and into my life as I examine that very fundamental relationship that defines who I am as not just a source of guilt and fear that I become like that person, but it's also a source of shame within me. A source of shame of who I am individually. What do I mean by that? You see, I share something, and it's not just because of my family relationship, but something that a lot of us can struggle with. As one scholar put it, we struggle not just with guilt of what we have done, but we struggle often fundamentally with the shame that there's something just wrong with me individually. There is a sense of shame that doesn't come from just what I've done, but from who I am, knowing that we don't feel like we measure up within that. Now, I'm going to submit to you as we begin in the covenant of creation, we look in the image of what does it mean to be a people of, who are made in the image of God, and we see our fundamental failure in that very first covenant relationship and how that brought shame into this world and brought it specifically as shame that each and every one of us bear and feel what I'm going to submit to you is that in these passages, we see a glorious hope that, yes, that shame we feel is real, but there's someone who can remove that shame from us. That very fundamental aspect that causes so much of us to be an anxiety, not just with the world, but an anxiety with ourselves is solved and resolved in a new creation, a fundamental new identity that we find in Jesus Christ. Now we begin in the very beginning of the story, right? Uh, and that's helpful for us to understand when we see the story of redemption. You know, a lot of times we want to go straight to Jesus. And certainly the gospel is so good that we can go straight to Jesus and we can't see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, but we find a far more textured and rich story when we start in the beginning. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of chapter 1, but I will highlight what we see within there is a glorious picture of creation. Now, so often in, in today's modern time, when we feel like we're uh, kind of having to fight for our faith within there in the worlds of society, we often, when we go to Genesis chapter one, we want to turn it into an argument over science and we want to turn it into, uh, a, a, go straight to the apologetics. And certainly there's a role for that, but we then miss there's an incredibly rich theological um, reading that we often miss because we're focusing, we're trying to argue about, uh, about science. And again, I'm not saying there's not a place for that, 
But I do want us to have a place to sing in the beauty of what God has done in creation. Because what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is, is God paints for this, this beautiful cosmology of a God who created everything. There isn't a pantheon of gods that created different things within there. there. We shouldn't worship the sun or the moon or the stars. We shouldn't worship trees or foxes or snakes or cats. Certainly not cats. But, um, and, and, and although they expect us to, but um, that means they're the product of the fall, by the way. Um, but be, I'm sorry, I'm digressing here. But this all shows that what we should worship is ultimately the one true God who is Yahweh. All these other things which we are so prone to worship are created things. And in the creation of all that he made, these were not accidental creations. They were purposeful, intentional creations that worked together, ultimately according to the plan of God, and in its creation was good. It's not accidental. As much as we want to try to think that creation was random, no, no our, our world is random. We live in a purposeful world and universe that is guided under the sovereign hand of God. And when we break down the creation, which it presents to us in um, the form of, of seven days within that, what you see is it breaks down um, in each day, you see different things. So in day one, you see God created the light and the darkness. Day two, and these are summaries, obviously, I would encourage you to read the whole Thing. Uh, in day two, the sea and the sky. In day three, land, sea, and vegetation. Now, what you see is he's setting the arena for all of creation in the first three days, but then you see its correspondence that day four matches with day one. Whereas day one, light and darkness created, he created the luminaries, the sun and the moon, on day four. And in, in day two, the, size, uh, the sea and the sky. In day five, the sea animals and the flying creatures were created. And day three, land, sea, and vegetation. Day six, land animals and humans were created. Now, as we move into day six, which is going to be in verse 26, which we'll get to here in a second, what you see is the whole creation story slows down. Whereas before, when he would talk about bringing about, you know, sea creatures or flying animals, he would say, let them go according to their kind. But you see a very special creation that is, that is presented in day six, not with the land animals, but when he gets to humans. And what we see is humanity is very special and very distinct from all the rest of creation. And so we take a look at verse 26 of chapter 1. And here we see it says, then, then God said, let us make man in our image. So this is something that is distinct from all the rest of creation. The giraffes, the camels, the, the, the whales, all of them are created by God and God values that creation and declared them good. But only man is said to be in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that is 
creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Notice how it continues to repeat that refrain. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so that highlights the reality that both male and female, not just male, are created in the image of God. So in other words, every one of you are created to be image bearers of God. We'll continue on here in just a minute. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. Now, if we were to stop real quick, and of course, we don't have time for, uh, you know, to examine every aspect of that. That would take a full series just to examine these few, few verses. What do we see? Mankind was made special. Uh, it was made in the image of God, but it was also made to have dominion. In other words, to have a ruling capacity under God's sovereign rule over creation. And so you see a special vertical relationship between man and humanity and a horizontal relationship between man and the rest of creation that is, that is formed there, right? Um, now, <clears throat> you shall have them for food. That's referring to the, the, uh, to the tree, the, the fruit. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heaven and to everything that creeps in the earth, everything that has breath of life, you have given them for every green plant for food, and it was so. Now, if we move into chapter 2, we're going to see, once again, how special this relationship is between man and God and man and the rest of creation, because he's going to tell the creation story of man once again, but just in a little bit different angle, right? It's not a different creation story. He's just telling it from a little bit different angle to help us see the nuance and see the glory of what he has done in creating humanity. Now, we're going to pick up into this in verse 7, so we're somewhat already starting, but he says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put men in whom he had formed. And so once again, you see that special relationship uh, between man and God. But when he was, and then after creating man, he created the garden. So man was created outside of the garden, but then he creates this special garden called Eden, and he takes man and he places man in the garden, right? And so we'll get to the, why that's important here in the minute. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant into the sight and good for food, and the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's going to go on in these next few verses to talk and give descriptions a little bit more about Eden. We're going to skip those, but these are very important descriptions. It's easy for us to move past because it talks about a river flowing out of it. It talks about different stones and gold that takes place. 
These are actually very important imageries that become important as we continue to look into the rest of the covenants because what we're going to see is as God calls the Israelites to form a tabernacle after he's formed them, the descriptions of the tabernacle, which represented God's presence, you see these echoes of Eden throughout all the decoration that is taking place. Additionally, as we saw, for those of you who are with us when we went through the series on the book of Revelation, we saw that all these echoes find themselves in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem as well. So these aren't just things to just skip by. These, these become important thematic uh, indicators that point to what God's ultimately going to be doing in his restoration as he brings about his covenants within there. So, but if we move into chapter 15, the, it, it kind of returns back to man. In verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Now, he didn't just put him in there to frolic around. He put him in here, and again, this is before sin, this is before the curse, to work it and keep it. Now, those two words are actually theological words. These are the same words and descriptions that were used of the Levite priest in their duty to the temple that they were supposed to do as described as part of the, the, the covenant in Exodus and, and, and Leviticus. So they were to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, so what we see once again here is God has established man in this special relationship in the image of God, a vertical relationship with him in which he has called him to be faithful to his task and which is defined in his relationship of obedience to God that he obey God, that he not eat of the tree of the good, fruit of the good uh, of good and evil, and to take care of this garden, to expand this garden throughout the rest of the world within there. Now, what does it mean when we say image of God? Now, there's a tremendous amount of debate that has taken place throughout the scholarship of the church. On what does this mean? And it can be broken down into three R word, R R E words: resemblance, relationship, or representation. Most of the time, if you've read something or heard a sermon about the image of God, you're going to hear resemblance. So, in other words, you're in the image of God means you have morality, or you have the ability for rational thought, or or language. And that's you know to use a, a fancy word, that's the ontology. Um, that, that we have. There's something special about us. We, can, we have a consciousness of an ability to think within there. Um, there's another aspect of that um, that you find that I actually, I don't actually agree with that interpretation of it, but there's another interpretation of resemblance that you go, find going all the way back to one of the very first theologians of the church by the name of Irenaeus, that, that fits under the resemblance in that he looks back to Christ as the archetype of the image of God. And I'll explain why that's important here in a little bit. That, and so there's a resemblance in that which Christ was always supposed to be. 
So in other words, man was made in the image of the true image of God, which is Christ. Now, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. I know that gets into a little bit dense and a little bit thick, but hold on with me, okay, guys? The, the second one is relationship. Very few people actually hold to that, but there's a few heavyweight scholars who do. But that, that means that being in the image of God means we are able to have a relationship with God. The far more, if you look at predominantly within the scholarship of modern-day church, you're going to find the representation. And this, in other words, that means it's functions. We're the image of God. What that means is we represent God's rule here on the world. And that is what it means to be in the image of God. And that goes back to the covenant language that we've been talking about, right? And there's, while you can argue for all three of them, I think you see actually the evidence of both the resemblance, if you go back to uh, an archetype of Christ, but definitely on representation within there. And I think those, both of those realities are in there. Now, you might say, wow, okay, I don't care. Here's why you care. What that means, and this is very important in today's world that really gets confused with humanity, what humanity is. Every single person, every single person from the point of conception, regardless of whatever rational thought is capable of, is a person made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect. That means a person with mental illness or mental disability is a person made in the image of God. They image God. A baby that is born in the womb, before they have had rational thought, or what the, our world would call personhood, is one made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect, and worthy of being protected. Okay. Now, what we see then within this, I'm going to argue to you, is a covenant relationship between God and, and man. Now, if you were here last week, I showed a video that talked about the different covenants. And you may be thinking back to that video, and you may be seeing, wait a minute, they didn't say anything about creation in that covenant video. But here you're saying there is a creation that is taking place. Well, once again, there's a lot of debate that goes into it, right? And so throughout history of the church, there have been some people that have seen covenants in creation and some people who have not so for example within covenant theologians they've actually seen two covenants within creation a covenant of law and a covenant of grace if you look at dispensational and others they say no the first covenant is the covenant of noah now why do i now if i had preached this sermon two years ago I would not have included this. So, but what convinced me of it? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons why, and I'll explain why this is important. First of all, when you look at the work of each covenant following, whether it's Noah 
or the Mosaic Covenant, they are all seem to be pointing back to this event in creation as in, a, in a way of restoring Eden. So that all the covenants, especially the new covenant that we see fulfilled in Christ, seems to be restoring this fundamental relationship take, that is taking place. So that, to me, becomes a very strong element. Additionally, if we go back to what is a covenant, a covenant is God, a sovereign king, exercising his rule here in this world through a special unmerited grace by which he chooses a person or individual to exercise his rule through in that special unmerited relationship. I think you see that here. Now, the third which has convinced me the reason why so many people ultimately don't hold to it is because you don't see the word covenant there. I think you see covenant working itself out. However, and this was the one that ultimately convinced me as I was researching for this sermon series, the point is what you do see here in Genesis is the covenant of marriage between man and woman that is clearly authenticated in other places in the Bible, but yet is, has the word covenant absent in that relationship. So it seems to me to be difficult to say you can't say there's a covenant between God and man because of the absence of the word covenant, but then also argue there's not, there's a covenant between man and woman, even though there's not a word covenant. Now you might say to me, Boy, this is a tough sermon. Who cares? Okay, I'm getting to it. When we look thin, what do we see in the covenant relationship? We see this special relationship. Once again, chosen by grace. Why did God choose humanity? Because of an act of his grace to choose us. To love us in his faithful, loyal love and in his faithfulness. But what do we see we as humans do with that covenant? We reject it. We reject it. Now, in rejecting that, we brought all of humanity into sin and shame. Now, most of you, I'm guessing, are like me, and we are shaped by our culture of individualism. And we hate that. We hate that we suffer. We hate that we go through all these things because of what Adam did. And we say, that's not fair within us. And we rebel and we recoil against that. But it's important for us to understand, and theologians have dealt with this. One of the things that we understand is all of us sinned in Adam in this decision. The other thing I want us to point out is that as much as we cherish this individualism, it becomes unattainable to real life in a thousand different ways in the way your world works out right now. For example, I've already given a few examples. I had no choice in the fact that I look a lot like my father, whom I don't really like. But that was not a choice given to me. That is something that was given to me as a representation of genetics. Some of you maybe wish that your parents didn't raise you in Texas, but yet you were raised. You didn't have a choice in that matter. 
think somebody from Texas is objecting to that point. There's so many different things in the way you were raised that you didn't have a choice in that has continual effects in you. If I was a deeply wealthy person coming from a, a family of deep wealth and prestige, and I did something uh, completely unethical that caused us to lose all of our wealth and all of our family prestige, that would affect my kids and my grandkids and so on and so forth. That is just a fact and a reality. That's the way life works. We are not nearly as individualistic as we think ourselves to be. And in this, we are dealing with the constant curse and effects of what happened to our very first father, the, the first image bearer, Adam. And this is called corruption. However, and this is the good news. This is why this is so important and why we hammer this and why I've kind of gotten into the weeds, the theology here. Let's go back to what we are celebrating as we move into Christmas. We're not just celebrating that God decided to forgive humanity, as great and as wonderful as that is. We're not just celebrating a God who is deeply loving, as true and wonderful as that is. We're celebrating a very specific act in history. Not a philosophy, not a thought, but a specific act in history in which the eternally begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Word, took on human flesh and dwelt among us and became our Savior. That reality explodes and distinguishes our faith. You know, so many people try to say, oh, all religions are just the same. Hogwash, you don't know what Christianity is then. There is a very distinct reality of our salvation and it is glorious and it is good and it is anything but man-made. And so what we see right off the bat as we go to our Savior Jesus Christ, who is Son of God and Son of Man, that a very important reality that he was born in the flesh, fully God and fully man, we see that he is the true image of God. And so we who are image bearers, and this kind of goes back to where I, the, the point of resemblance, what we see is we look at the Hebrews chapter 1, he says this, the writer says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appeared as the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So the one through whom he created the world, Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten son, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we want to see what is the true image of God. What does it mean to be the true image bearers, the faithful son? You look to Christ. God brought this about through his power. But not only that, what we see is I've been emphasizing this true image of God 
bore human flesh. And so we see, that's why we see in the Gospels, in two of the four Gospels, we see a story of Jesus' birth. We see this reality that Jesus came. And so we see, for example, in Luke, that genealogy, and I'm not going to read all of it. It begins in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being of the son, as he was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And it goes on, and it wraps up in verse 38, and it says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, as much as... People don't never want to hear a story of genealogy. Scholars love it, and they looked at it, and there's actually been Jewish scholars who have actually converted to Christianity studying the very genealogies. As they look and they see it, it's the fulfillment of God's plan. He is the son of God, son of Adam, born in the flesh. He is also the one who is perfectly obedient to the Father. He perfectly held as the true image bearer. He was faithful, whereas Adam was not. He was obedient to the Father. We see that right off the bat. He was tempted like Adam. And in fact, when we go to the Gospels, after Jesus was baptized, he was anointed the Messiah one. He was taken out into the wilderness to be tested. And in that time, he had fasted. So in other words, he hadn't had anything to eat for 40 days. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in that. We'll cover that later. But notice what the very first temptation Satan tried to tempt Jesus with. To eat when he wasn't supposed to eat. He turned that rock into bread. Jesus stayed faithful. He did not eat, though the tempter tried to tempt him to. Additionally, in Adam, he went to the tree he was not supposed to go to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does that mean? What that means by choosing of the tree and the temptation that Satan did is there was a rebellion against God being the one to dictate what moral order was. It was a saying, I'm not going to live my life. I can, I'm going to choose a kingdom that is in defiant to God where we dictate what we're going to do. Jesus went to the tree. And from that time, you see in the Old Testament, you see the curses. Uh, to die on a tree, according to the Old Testament law, was really, really bad. To die on a tree, a person was cursed. All the curses of the law came upon it. And that's pointing back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why it's so shameful for Christ to have died on the cross. But yet... Christ went to that tree on the cross where the tree, symbolizing where the tree where humanity was brought into trespass, he went to the tree to cover our trespasses, to remove the trespasses of sin. And as a new Adam, what he did was he paved the way for a new creation. Now, Romans, Paul, Paul says this here in Romans. We're going to have to move quickly. So again, we could do an entire sermon series on this, Romans chapter 5. But he says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
That's referring to the fall. That's referring to Adam. And death through sin, so also death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. And the whole section is trying to explain how the law of Moses isn't adequate to be able to cover for the sinfulness of humanity. So that's why he's bringing this in. Uh, But sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So in other words, even though uh, the law of Moses condemns one, we still, the rule of sin was there before the law in Moses, right? Uh, So death reigned from Moses to Adam, even before whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. It's referring to Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, so in other words, all of humanity dies because of what Adam did, much more has the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. So in other words, If Adam, who was a sinful human being, brought in death, how much more will Jesus, who was both of the flesh of Adam, therefore enabling us to receive that benefit, but also the Son of God, how much more will that grace be able to cover our sins? Therefore, the the trespass led to condemnation for all men, One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteous leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. One more, Paul once again in Roman in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is realizing, he's explaining the importance of the fact that Jesus Christ rise from the dead. The importance that we understand that we as believers, our hope is that we will rise from the dead as Christ is risen from the dead. And he explains why that is so fundamental, why if we don't believe that, we don't have hope. And he says this in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as all in Adam all die, so also... Christ shall all be made alive. So in other words, just as all of us find death because of Adam's sin, all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will rise. That's why in the baptism, that's one of the aspects we emphasize is we have been united with Christ, both in his death 
and in his resurrection, the coming out, out of the water. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each of his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then coming those who belong in Christ. Now, so what? The other day I had to go to the mall. And in the mall I decided, I, I haven't been to the mall in a long time. I had to drop off a kid uh, there. And... I decided, you know, I haven't been to Barnes & Noble. Barnes, Barnes & Noble used to be one of my favorite stores. And so I said, let, let me go into Barnes & Noble. And so I went in, and I was browsing through the, 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 the various sections within there. And it struck me how many self-help books they were talking about how to relieve anxiety, how to deal with, how to cope with life. And it struck me how much we were looking for hope in the midst of this life. Why does the covenant of creation and the fact that Jesus Christ, all of this thick theology matter? It's because it gives us a true hope. A true hope of a fundamental change in our nature of who we are. Not just the way we think. As much as self-help and positive thinking can, can help us and and I'm not saying there's not things to that. As much as, you know, trying to establish good habits can, can help relieve some of the anxiety that we feel. As much as kind of understanding and separating, you know, the toxic thoughts within our brains versus the true thoughts within there. Okay, those, those are all fine things and dandy. But none of those are going to actually deal with the shame that we feel and our ultimate eternal hope. What we find in Jesus Christ coming and taking on human flesh is the possibility of a new creation, a possibility of a far glorious hope. Not something that is just ethereal and philosophical and psychological, but a tangible reshaping of the cosmos that is available through Christ within there. What we see, friends, is this. When Adam betrayed the covenant, what was the first thing that happened? Adam and Eve looked at each other and they saw that they were naked. And what happened? They were afraid. They were ashamed. They were ashamed. And we've been dealing with that shame ever since. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, he went to the cross. Don't miss this. What happened on the cross? He was stripped naked and endured what was meant to be the most dehumanizing and shameful death possible. The cross was excruciating and painful. There's no doubt about that. But that wasn't the true horror of the cross. 
The true horror of the cross was to completely dehumanize a person, to make them the most loathsome, shameful thing that people can imagine. On the cross, Jesus bore our shame. So that through his resurrection, you have the hope of something new. Not just a new way of thinking that you yourself can be fundamentally made new through the power of the Spirit. So we see in Colossians this fundamental reality that I hope gives you just incredible joy. This is the Christmas joy right here. It's not receiving something perishable, but something imperishable. And so he says then, if you have been raised with Christ, that's that uniting with Christ, the reality that he has risen from the dead, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is that referring to? That's the, the union with Christ that we see in our baptism. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you who also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie with one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with this practice and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. Listen, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew. So in other words, all the inherent places we try to bring hierarchy and shame to one another, that's erased in Christ. There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. The living Christ, through the work of the Spirit, is in us creating us into something new and creating us into a community that is new. You have a hope this morning that can come to us from the reality that Christ was born. A hope that's bigger than a new bicycle or a PS5. A hope that is bigger than a new car, a new iPhone. It's a hope of our shame that comes to us from the fact that we are all born into sin. We have that hope that it can be made new. That there is a new way of life. Yes, we are both, both sinners and saints simultaneously in this world. And as Tim Keller says so often, you're more sinful than you can possibly imagine, but you're more loved than you can dare to dream. That love bores itself out in Christ. 
But that love doesn't just save us. It doesn't just give us a get out of jail. It fundamentally changes us. And so here's my question. What hope are you settling for? Are you settling for just a hope that makes your life more bearable to help you get through? Or do you have the audacity to place your face in the Christian hope, which is an entire new reality that is ours in Christ because of grace? You can receive that hope by faith alone this morning. Faith alone in the risen Lord in Jesus Christ. Thanks for being here.